Go ahead and open your Bibles to Esther chapter 6. Esther chapter 6. We're moving our way through this great book. One of my favorite stories in Scripture, and the more I study it, the more remarkable I find it to be. And as we've been walking our way through this uh, story, the plot has thickened, right? And so I want to recap for those of you that are just joining us, or maybe you've been out for a little while. Let's recap where we are in this narrative. The story takes place about 500 years before the birth of Jesus. It's during the time of the Persian Empire. So that's the setting. The Jews are in exile. Some of them have returned to Jerusalem. Many of them are still there. And this particular story takes place in Susa, which was one of the main cities, the Persian Empire. The king had an official palace there. He spent a lot of time. And that's the first character that we were introduced to, was the king of Persia. His name is Xerxes. And the translation I'll be reading today, it's translated Ahasuerus in the Hebrew. The same man, Ahasuerus, Xerxes, same man. The second character that's very important to the text, is, of course, Esther. Esther is the queen, but she didn't start out that way. If you remember, the first queen was deposed because she didn't do what the king wanted. So Esther was chosen on this terrible beauty contest pageant. Esther was the last girl standing. She gets the award. You know, She gets the crown of being married to this man, this, uh, this tyrant, brutal king, Xerxes. So Esther is um, queen. Xerxes is king, and there's a couple other characters you need to know about. Mordecai is Esther's uncle. Now, Esther's Jewish. No one knows that right now except Mordecai and a few others in that Jewish community. The king doesn't know it because the Jews were not loved at this point in time. In fact, the last character I'll introduce you to is an evil man named Haman. Now, he was at the very top of the king's government. He was the right-hand man of King Xerxes, and Haman had convinced the king to pass a law that all the Jews were going to be exterminated. And this law had gone out, and it was a done deal, right? This is going to happen. And the one that's most excited and happy is Haman, because he hates the Jews. In particular, he hates Esther's uncle, Mordecai. Because every day when Haman passes through that palace gate, going to or from work, there's only one man that does not bow down to him to give Haman dignity and honor that he feels he is due because of his position. And that one man is Mordecai. Mordecai is a thorn in his flesh. Now, you know that this whole story pivots around a key question that Uncle Mordecai asks Esther. And we talked about this three weeks ago. The key question, it's really the theme verse for the whole book, is this question. Who knows, Esther, whether you have attained royalty for such a time as this? And that question opens up the veil, right? It opens the curtain, and Esther begins to wonder, maybe God is at work, and maybe it's not just coincidence or chance that I, a young Jewish girl, am queen. Maybe this is an opportunity for me to be a part of God's redemption. And so after fasting for several days, she goes before the king with this famous line, if I perish, I perish. In other words, I'm throwing caution to the wind. I think God is in this. I'm going to follow. And if it means my death, it means my death. But I'm going to go to the king. Now, to go to the king, she had to break a law. The king cannot be interrupted. You can't go to the king uninvited. So she's literally laying her life on the line to go before the king. And we talked last week about her act of doing that. She was doing all that she could do, but she couldn't do it all. God had to intervene. And we read a verse in Proverbs that reminded us that God is the one that turns the heart of the king. And God turns the heart of that king, and Esther finds favor in the king's sight. And so she says, come to a banquet with me, you and Haman. 
And that night there was a banquet. And the king said, what is it that you want? And I'll give it to you. And she says, before I tell you, I want you to come back tomorrow to another banquet. And there I will tell you. And that night, Haman goes home. And on his way, there's Mordecai. Mordecai doesn't honor him. It makes Haman furious. And that night he plots to have Mordecai killed, literally impaled on a 75-foot pole. He's going to be hung on that pole for all to see that you don't mess with Haman. That's where we left the story off last night, or last week. It's the middle of the night. Haman's building a pole. He's going to execute Mordecai, but he needs the king's permission. And so we're going to pick up the text in chapter 6. I've got to tell you before I start reading, this might be my favorite chapter in the whole story. I mean, it's spectacular what God's about to do here. But it's so subtle. It's behind the scenes. Yet when you add it all up, you see God at work. So last week we focused on what Esther did. This week we're going to focus on what God did. So let's start in verse 1. And we'll just read it verse at a time and I'll make a few comments. Esther 6, verse 1. During that night, now this is the same night where the banquet had happened and Haman had built the gallows or built the big pole to impale Mordecai. During that night, the king could not sleep. So he gave an order to bring the book of records, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. The king couldn't sleep. In the Hebrew, it's an interesting little word picture. The king's sleep fled from him. Uh, I, I know this is a large enough group. Some of you in this room struggle with insomnia or something close to it. You struggle to sleep. My, my wife is like this, poor thing. If there's something on her mind, she has a hard time sleeping. She'll be up in the middle of the night, can't go back to sleep, just tossing and turning. I sleep like a baby. And I, I feel guilty about it because I'll, I'll you know, wake up in the morning, hey, Jody, how did you sleep? And she's just like, that's terrible. You know, tell me how terrible it was. And then she'll say, how did you sleep? <laughs> I want to I say terrible, but I really slept great, right? Now, sometimes when Jody can't sleep, she'll stop trying to sleep and she'll get up and be productive. So I'll literally wake up in the morning sometimes and like some part of our house is now clean that wasn't clean the night before. You know, she's like done all this stuff and she said, hey, you know, this is what I've done. It's wonderful. I'm just sleeping and stuff gets done. Now, who is sleeping and who's not sleeping? Esther's sleeping, as far as we know. No reason to believe she's not. Mordecai's sleeping. Who's not sleeping? king's not sleeping. Who else is not sleeping? You're going to find out Haman's not been sleeping. Why has he not been sleeping? He's been building the gallows, right? Someone else is not sleeping because he never sleeps. Who's that? God is at work here. Every time you see a coincidence in the book of Esther, you start to realize it's not a coincidence. No coincidence that on this night, when Haman's building this executional pole to impale Mordecai, the king is having a sleepless night. And let's see what happens in verse 2. So he's reading these records. It was found written what Mordecai had reported concerning Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers, that they had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Let me explain what's going on here. This is an incident that happened five years prior. It was recorded in the official royal record of everything that happened. It's like, you know, the newspaper or whatever, but it's just for the king. We know about this incident because it is also recorded in our account of Esther back in chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. Mordecai had uncovered a plot to kill the king. He had told the king about the plot, and the evil men that were plotting to depose or kill the king were uh, disciplined. They were punished. And actually, they were, you know, head would have chopped off or probably impaled on a pole. 
So we know that Mordecai had saved the king's life, but now we learn that he'd not been rewarded for it. Five years had passed. That was very unusual. I even wonder if Mordecai had thought to himself, what gives? It's not fair. I uncovered this plot, and the king didn't so much as thank me. Did he even notice? An injustice was done, right? But it's all in God's timing. God was saving the reward for when it would matter most. This is the time. So here we have coincidence number two. Not only can the king not sleep, but of all the accounts that could have been read over 12 years of his rule at this point, it's this account of Mordecai saving his life that is read. Let's continue in verse 3. The king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Then the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. So you have this oversight. How remarkable that the very same night that Haman is preparing to destroy Mordecai, the king is preparing now to honor Mordecai. Same man, very different intentions from these two men. John Martin, who's a a biblical commentator, put it this way. I thought this is helpful. The entire course of history for the Jewish nation was changed because a pagan king, hundreds of miles from the center of God's activities in Jerusalem, couldn't sleep. God is at work. Now what you see in this story is Mordecai is, in essence, representative of the entire Jewish nation. If Mordecai goes down... It's not a good sign for what's coming for the Jews. But if Mordecai is saved, it's sort of the the first. It's the first fruits of the salvation for the Jews that God is going to bring about later in the story. So this is a good thing. This is God at work to save Mordecai's life. Let's pick it up in verse 4. So the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows which he had prepared for him. Perfect timing. The king's servant said to him, Behold, Haman is standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. you got to love how this is setting up, right? The king needs some help. He needs someone to honor Mordecai. Who happens to be there? Haman. Now, why is Haman there? Haman is like the early bird, right? He cannot wait to get into the king's presence to convince the king that Mordecai needs to die. And because of God's divine timing, God's divine sovereignty, he happens to be the only one there early in the morning waiting to talk to the king. I love the way God is on the move here. Verse 6, so Haman came in. The king said to him, what is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor. Now, listen listen to this. Haman said to himself, who would the king desire to honor more than me? I'm glad you're chuckling. This is actually designed to be ironic. It's designed even to be humorous, right? Because the the reader, think about what the narrator's doing. He's, He's a brilliant narrator. He knows what we know. He knows what the king knows, what Haman knows, but see, the king and Haman don't see all the picture. The king doesn't know that Haman has, you know, a a grudge against Mordecai. Mordecai, or, or, yep, Haman, I'm getting all the names confused now. Haman doesn't know that the king is desiring to honor Mordecai. In fact, I I love, it's just his true character of Haman's. Well, who is it besides me? (laughs) And so because of his own vanity, he steps into 
what I'd call the trap that God is setting for him, you see. The tables are about to turn on Haman. Verse 7, Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king desires to honor, let them bring a royal robe which the king has worn, and the horse on which the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown has been placed. And let the robe and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble princes, and let them array the man whom the king desires to honor, and lead him on horseback through the city square, and proclaim for him, Thus it shall be done for the, to the man whom the king desires to honor. Quite a little speech. Interesting response. I want you to think about something. Haman could have asked for anything. He thinks this is something coming to him. Carte blanche. What he asked for reveals a lot about his heart. He could have asked for money. He could have asked for another wife, you know, and, and make it the most beautiful maiden. He could have asked for uh, a tax exemption for the rest of, of your life. He could have asked for a big mansion. You know, there's all kinds of things he could have asked for. What does he ask for? Look back at the text for a minute. Look at those three verses. I, I want you to note how many times the following words appear in those three verses. King, honor, royal, robe, crown, and noble. All of those words have to do with nobility, royalty, kingship. They appear 15 times in three verses. What is Haman actually asking here? He's saying, I want to be as close to the king as I possibly can. I want to look like him. I want to be dressed like him. I want to ride on his horse. I want people to look at me and I want them to say, man, that looks like the king. I better bow. You know, I better honor him. You might put it this way. Haman is a glutton for honor. Now this reveals something about his heart. In fact, I'd say it this way. It reveals the biggest idol of Haman's heart. In other words, he so much craves affirmation and so much craves respect. What his heart is actually crying out through this request is, look at me, everyone. I'm important. Notice me. I matter. I want to encourage you sometime this week by way of application. Ask yourself this question. If you could ask for anything in the world and know that God would give it to you, what would you ask for? I think if you really take some time with that question, it'll reveal whatever you believe is the biggest gap that you have that's stopping you or keeping you from really having the fullness of life. Some of you might say, if I could just be financially secure... Some of you might say, if my kids, if I could just be guaranteed that my kids would just follow God and, and, and be good people all their days. 
Some of you might say, if that product or that, that dream that I've been dreaming about, if it would just be successful, I don't have to be a multimillionaire, but just successful. I want to live out this dream. Some of you might say, if I could just get to the end of my days with a reputation where people would, would speak at my funeral service, my memorial, and, and say, here was a man, here was a woman who loved God and loved people. Right? If that was all, if that's it, that's what I'd ask for. What is it for you? That question will reveal whatever it is inside of you that you perceive to be a gap that keeps you from having fullness of life. Here's the irony of this. Oftentimes, whatever your greatest perceived lack is, whatever your perceived need that's been withheld from you for whatever reason, that's the thing that's keeping you from experiencing fullness of life. That longing, that gap, right? What is it that you would desire? What is it that you would want more than anything else? Penetrating question. Encourage you to think that through this week. Verse 10 is the kicker for Haman. Uh, Marvelous verse. Haman has just said, this is everything you should do to the man you want to honor, thinking it's about him. Here's what the king says. The king said to Haman, take quickly the robes and the horse as you have said and do so for, dramatic pause here, Mordecai the Jew, who is sitting at the king's gate, do not fall short at anything of all that you have said. I wish I could have seen the look on Haman's face. Like I picture him just like, yep, yeah, I'm getting ready for that. Lay it on me, king. You know, you know, lay, lay it on thick. I'm ready for your honor. He says, Mordecai. And Haman just would have been like, I mean, I'm serious, right? I imagine him just being compl- like this. He must have had a physical reaction. There's no question in my mind. Of all the people in the entire Persian Empire, not Mordecai. <laughs> you know, he came there to ask for Mordecai's head. Isn't it beautiful that Haman is now the one that has to honor him? <sighs> Joyce Baldwin, she wrote a great commentary on Esther, by the way. Uh, she says it this way. It's the very predictability of Haman's self-glorification that makes for such intense dramatic irony when Haman has to eat the dust and honor his hated enemy. And then maybe my favorite line by, by another commentator, Kerry Moore, here the early bird is gotten by the worm. <laughs> Let's pick up the story and see what happens. Uh, verse 11, Haman took the robe and the horse and arrayed Mordecai. In other words, he dressed Mordecai like a king and led him on horseback through the city square, proclaiming before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Must have been like gravel in his mouth to get those words out, right? Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried home, mourning with his head covered. You remember the uh, night before, Haman had wanted to lift Mordecai up on this pole. And why did he make the pole 75 feet? To make a statement. The statement Haman wanted to declare is, this is what is to be done with the man that messes with me, Haman. Instead, he has to lift Mordecai up on a horse and proclaim verbally, this is what is done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Notice Haman's expression of lament. He returns home mourning with his head covered. It reminds us of Mordecai's mourning. A couple chapters prior, the beginning of chapter 4, we find Mordecai mourning as well. But here's the contrast. Here's the difference. Mordecai was mourning for the fate of his people. Haman was mourning his own embarrassment, his own personal loss of honor. What a contrast. Let's close out the chapter here in 13 and 14. 
Haman recounted to Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and Zeresh, his wife, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hastily brought Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. <laughs> this is rich. Uh, literally, while they're speaking to him, he's being ushered off to what will end up being his death sentence. He doesn't know it yet. His wife and the wise men, these are the same people who had suggested that he build this pole, he build the gallows and hang him on the pole and impale him the night before. And now they're realizing that the tables are turning against Haman. In fact, I would think of it this way. It's likely that the people in that cultural context recognize that the Jewish people lived under some kind of special divine blessing. And they didn't know all that they knew and they couldn't you know, quote from Deuteronomy or anything else, but they apparently knew that there is something important and special about these Jewish people and you better not mess with them. And here's the man that had a grudge and wanted to wipe out the whole nation. And now they're starting to realize the tables are turning and you, Haman, will not over, be, you will not overcome this, but you will rather be overcome. This is the principal theme of the book of Esther. It's found in these two verses right here and I'd, I'd phrase it this way. God will take care of his people and their enemies will be destroyed. That's the message that the Jewish people heard every time they retold the story. Remember, remember Esther. Remember Haman. Remember what happened. God will take care of his people and their enemies will be destroyed. Same lesson, same message for us this morning. Now here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to step back and look at the big picture. I want to use the time that we have left to ask what's really going on here and how does it apply to us this morning. Now, here's what I want you to see. I want you to see that this part of the story is all God. It's all God at work. Last week, we talked about co-laboring with God. If those of you that were here, you might remember that. And I used this analogy of gardening. You remember, the thing about gardening is you can only do so much. You can plant the seed, you can fertilize it, you can pull the weeds, you can water it, but you can't provide the sun. You can't do whatever's necessary in the, in the genetic makeup of that seed to begin to sprout and, and grow and become an apple tree or a tulip or whatever it is that you've planted. You can't do any of that. So when you garden, you work with God. You co-labor with God. You do all that you can do, but then you trust God to do what only he can do. We talked about that last week. Here's chapter 6. Chapter 6 is what God can only do. You see, Esther, all she's done at this point, invited the king to a banquet. She hasn't even asked him what she needs to ask him. Like She hasn't even done much. Think of it this way. She's taken one step of faith. Now that step could cost her her life, but she did it. And then God springs into action. And what chapter 6 is all about is God's part. Chapter 6 is God showing off. <laughs> I mean, what are the chances? The sleepless night, the, the reading from the book of Chronicles. Haman comes in at the right time. He's forced to honor Mordecai. You see God just at work here. This is what I love about this chapter. Mordecai's not doing anything in chapter 6. Right? He's receiving. Esther's not doing anything in chapter 6. She's sleeping, and then during the day, she's probably preparing the banquet, right? This is God at work showing off. Now, there's no surprise that the work we see God doing in chapter 6 centers on redemption. This is what God does. 
several weeks back, we were talking about how do you know where God's at work? Like, how do you know what God desires of your life and, and what God's plan for me? And, and, and I, I gave you this little phrase, if you want to know where God is at work, and here's the phrase I gave, God's works of providence are always moving toward his purposes of redemption. In other words, if you want to know where God is at work in your life, look to the places that are broken. Look for the places in you and in those around you where there is brokenness, where there is loss, where there is dysfunction. Those are the places that God wants to mend. Now, how do we get there? When you think about redemption in the church context, you're probably thinking, you know, grace, salvation, cross. To that I say, yes. That's all where it begins. That's all where it starts. But I want to define redemption for you a little bit more broadly. In fact, I want to talk about redemption along two levels. And then where we're going with this is there are three lessons about redemption in chapter 6. So let's talk first about redemption and then we'll get to the lessons about redemption. There is the macro theological concept of redemption, which is from Genesis to Revelation. God is on the move redeeming and recreating Broken lost people and broken creation. So in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, everything is right. Adam and Eve in the garden, walking with God. Everything is as it should be. Genesis chapter 3, the fall. Everything gets broken. And it's broken all the way to Revelation 21, 22, which is a vision of the future where all is made right again. You see, this is a grand story of redemption. Broken things put back together. Redemption always centers on Jesus. None of the redemption could happen if Jesus, God's son, does not come, live a life perfectly, die the death that we all deserved, and raise back to life. He's the hinge point for this redemption story to happen. So that's the theological idea of redemption. Now, when I talk about micro or little mini acts of redemption, I'm talking about the way that that core redemption can flow through you and begin to heal relationships that you have or parts of you that are still not right because we're not yet to Revelation 21 and 22. We're still living in between. So think of it this way. Once you're saved, your core relationship to God is redeemed. You can begin to sing the words of the song we sang earlier, you're a good, good father. You can sing those words with integrity. Even though you're a sinner, God views you as a beloved child through your faith in Jesus Christ. His love and delight in his own son is given to you, though you don't deserve it. We've been singing and talking about that all the morning. But once that happens in you, you begin to realize that you can be a conduit of grace for others around you. So you can now speak to your children differently. You can now interact with your husband or wife differently. You can be a neighbor that you couldn't be before because you are receiving grace and so grace is flowing out of you. So while you are engaging in this beautiful story of redemption, you're also a vessel of redemption in the lives of those around you and even in your own heart. That's what spiritual growth is like. Think about it this way. Redemption at both the macro level and acts of redemption at the micro level all Center around Jesus. He is it. It's why that there can be no other name under heaven by which men are saved. Jesus makes redemption possible. 
So when you hear the word redemption, particularly for this morning, think about that big salvation level and then think about areas in your life that are still broken. Relationships, hurts, pains, all the things in you that you wish were different than they are. God desires to redeem those things and he will. So here are the three lessons about redemption from this text. I'll go through them briefly and then I'll unpack each for just a couple of minutes. Number one, redemption is God's plan. Number two, redemption is God's prerogative. And number three, redemption happens on God's schedule. Number one, redemption is God's plan. In other words, it's not a question of if God will redeem. He has. And on the one hand, he has. And on the other hand, he will. So in other words, you don't ever have to wonder, this brokenness inside of me, this area of sin in my life, or this dysfunctional relationship, or that person that's so far from God, does God desire redemption in that situation? The answer is yes. It's where all of creation is heading. It's what Revelation 21 and 22 talk about. It is our hope. All things will be made right. It's not a matter of if. Redemption is where God is moving things. God's works of providence are always moving toward his purposes of redemption. Now, redemption does not necessarily mean that there is no judgment. Haman is a great example of this. Haman is an enemy of God because Haman is an enemy of God's people. Haman has decided, I'm going to kill this man and I'm going to wipe out his entire race. Haman has aligned himself against the one true God. I would think of it this way. Judgment, as understood and executed by God, is part of redemption. In other words, if you think about God's wrath towards sin, God's wrath is good and right because sin is wrong. Pain is real. Suffering is true. It exists. And so when we think about hell in Scripture, one of the ways I want you to think about this idea is a primary purpose of hell is to provide permanent separation of everyone and everything that is not yielded to God and made new. Think about the defining characteristic of the new creation that is to come, right? The new heaven, the new earth. Everyone and everything is right. Everything's put back together. Everything's fixed. Everything's redeemed. That new creation cannot coexist with those who have not submitted to God and been made right through Jesus Christ. Judgment is a part of redemption. And redemption is God's plan. It's coming. Redemption. And that's a good thing. Number one, redemption is God's plan. Number two, redemption is God's prerogative. In other words, it's ultimately out of your control. Sometimes we want so badly for something to be fixed. There's an injustice. There's a wound. There's a personal hurt. And we want to just make it right but there's only so much you can do. Remember last week, gardening, using it as a metaphor for all that we do, gardening means that there's only so much you can do. Do all that you can do. Trust God to do what only he can. 
can do. Much of our frustration in life, I believe, comes from when we try to fix something or make something right that ultimately only God can fix. Do your part. Engage in it. Take a step of faith like Esther did, by all means. But at the end of the day, you've got to leave redemption in the hands of God. It's his prerogative. Redemption is God's plan. Redemption is God's prerogative. Number three, redemption happens on God's schedule. In other words, not on yours schedule. Isn't it interesting in the Esther story that God did so much in the middle of the night? Sometimes when circumstances are their darkest, they're their most dire, most confounding, you know, sometimes you're at a place where it seems like nothing good can come out of this dark situation. You just can't see anything in front of you other than blackness, darkness. Sometimes that's where God is most at work at nighttime. Uh, Some of you this morning, this is the word of encouragement from God's word that you need to hear. Sometimes God does his best work in the middle of the night while you're sleeping, while you're exhausted, while you're confused, while you can't see. Don't think just because redemption or, 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 or brokenness being fixed is not happening on your time frame, don't think it's not happening. Don't think that God's not on the move. Don't give up hope. Don't believe that it's got to happen according to your definition and your expectations and your time frame. That's one of the messages of this passage in Esther. Redemption happens on God's schedule. In fact, I'd say it this way. One measure of your spiritual maturity is your ability to not demand that redemption happen on your schedule and according to your definition and according to your explanation, your expectations. But to be open-handed and say, God, this is a mess. I'm doing whatever I can do, but you've got to move. And for some of you, you'll see him move in your lifetime. For some of you, you'll see him move on the other side of death. But you will see him move regardless, you see. Redemption happens on God's schedule. It takes faith to believe that, doesn't it? You know, Jesus, when he was talking about faith one time, he said, you don't have to have a lot of it. You just have to have mustard seed-sized faith. Think about what Esther has done here, right? She didn't arm wrestle the king. She didn't threaten him. She hasn't even gotten to the reason that she wants to see him yet. All she's done is invite him to a banquet. All she's done is take this little mustard seed and she's taken one step with it. And look what all that God did. By the time that the king and Haman get to the banquet that Esther's working on right now, God's already put in the heart of the king favor toward Mordecai. And he's also going to turn the heart of the king against Haman. And wrong will be made right, you see. Our part, God's part. We have faith, mustard seed size, and we take one step. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do this week. Remember those bookmarks we gave you several weeks back? Some of you have them. If you don't have one on your way out, pick up a bookmark on the table on your left in the vestibule. Here's what I want you to do with the bookmark. If you hadn't already, write down... What might be your for such a time as this circumstance right now? 
It could be a relationship God has led you to. It could be an opportunity that's in front of you. It could be something hard, some struggle in your life, a sin area where God would say, for such a time as this, I want to set you free in this. But what is it that you think God might be at work in your life for such a time as this? Once you've written that down, this week I want you to take one little step, one mustard seed. It might be just calling someone up and saying, I just need to share this, and this is my one little step. You know? It might be you just begin to pray. It might just be your step is to write it down. Right? You've been afraid, been ashamed to write it down. You write it down. Whatever your one step is this week, take the step and watch God at work. Maybe even while you sleep. That's the kind of God we serve. Bow your heads and let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for being good to us. We thank you for the grace by which we stand. We thank you for this huge story of redemption that we're caught up in. And we thank you for these little bitty stories of redemption that you've called us to, all of us, all around us. And God, for me, there are places in my heart that I'm longing for you to heal. I'm longing for you to change. And that is true for every person in this room. And there are relationships that we have, people that need to hear about redemption. Relationships that maybe are wrong and they need to be put back together and that's going to be hard. God, would you help us this week just to take one step, one step. We anticipate you at work in these things as we trust you with our faith. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I want to read to you a benediction. It comes from the book of Romans. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would add these words. As you go, may you walk in the redemption that was bought for you, and may you overflow that grace to those around you. Amen. Have a great week. See you next week.